This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for creating a blog, a website, a portfolio, or an online store. Create your own space today by visiting squarespace.com and use offer code TREK10 to save 10%. Plus, if you'd like to support our programming personally, visit trek.fm donate to get our alien badges and art prints featuring original illustration by Tobu Ushi. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our Star Trek books and comics show. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me as he is every week from down there in Texas is my co-host Matthew Rushing. Matthew, how's everything happening in Texas these days? Are you are you tuned in to the football that's happening down there? Well, Chris, I mean, we've got football. Um, we just had the state fair here in, in Dallas, Texas. That's right. uh, so lots of fried food was consumed yeah. by lots of people. State Fair. Let me just go ahead and interrupt you right there because we've talked about this on shows before. What was the new, or have you heard, what was the new fried food item this year at the Texas State Fair? Yeah, the newest fried food item, and the line was like an hour long, was fried Nutella. Now, uh, okay, I, what is that? It Well, it's <laughs> Nutella. The spread. Oh, the spread. Yes. yes, yes uh, okay. Fried. And so um, now I didn't <laughs> have that. I actually waited in the same line, but I got my favorite uh, fried cookie dough, which is just so good. Um, now that sounds pretty it good. Really, I, I'd, I would eat that. Oh my goodness, Chris. It's so good. And it was so worth the wait. Um, but yeah, it was really crowded when we went uh, because it was the last weekend. There are a billion people there. But uh, if anybody happens to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, uh, they would have seen my pictures. Uh, We went up in the big, huge Ferris wheel that's there, and uh, it was right at dusk. And so some great pictures of downtown Dallas with the sun setting behind it. So really, really nice, uh, even though it was crowded. It it was fun. That sounds fun. Wow. Ah, man. No no fried alcoholic beverages this year? Yeah, no. Um... I mean, I think they learned their lesson with fried beer that it's gross and nobody wants really <laughs> hot beer. It's just not good. So uh, I'm glad that they've learned their lesson and uh, we can move forward. <laughs> okay, that that sounds good. Now, if, if, if they put the beer in the batter that they put on things to fry it, that would probably be good. But Yeah, but now that's a, that's a great itself. idea, actually. I mean, if you're going to have fried yeah. beer, just use batter that's fried. I don't know. Anyway, with beer in the batter. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) All right, well, why don't we jump into our Star Trek news here? We have just a little bit of stuff in news this week. And the first one is, now, I didn't read this because I heeded your warning on the show notes page here, but a super spoilery new blurb for Peaceable Kingdoms in the fall series has come out. Chris, it sure did, and... uh, Likewise, uh, you know, I had seen Dayton tweeting about this, and uh, I really did uh, heed his warning as well. I did not read this, so 
Uh, I just wanted people to be aware that it was there uh, and it was available. I'm not looking. Um, I don't want to know. In fact, Dayton <laughs> and I actually talked about that on Twitter. I, I I really don't want to be spoiled with this series. Um, I am finishing up Uno's book right now, The Crimson Shadow, and it's fantastic so far. Um, you know, David Mack's new book comes out next week, and so I, I can't wait to read that. So I just don't want to be spoiled with this series because so many big things are happening. Uh, I'd rather be uh, surprised as I read instead of, you know, knowing everything yeah. going in. And so... Yeah, so like you said, uh, when we were talking before the show, it seems that they're a little more comfortable now of spilling the beans on plot points because the the series, you know, more of the books are out. But, but it is, and the reason we're telling everyone about it right here is A, to let you know that it's there, but B, to warn you to be careful if you see these articles about books in the fall series that you haven't read yet because they are starting to reveal things that will spoil the earlier books for you so just be careful on that. yeah definitely i don't want people to you know accidentally pick up the back of you know a book and, and read the and think oh no i haven't read this one yet uh, just be careful and really as i've already seen this is really a good series a lot of big things are happening really well written so far by the first two authors i know david mack james swallow and uh, obviously Dayton are fantastic writers as well, so I have no doubts that they're going to have great books, big spoilers, uh, and and uh, you know just you know big action and uh, lots of great plot points coming. So me personally, I don't like to know. Um, you know, I used to be a big spoilers guy, like I always wanted to know what's going on, like in the TV show or the movie or whatever. And nowadays, I really stay away from that. Uh, I really enjoy having the story kind of play out for me. Where whatever medium I'm in, whether it's a movie or you know a book yeah. or whatever, I don't want to know. So, but this is exciting. I'm, I'm glad that this is getting built up. It's a great series, and I look forward to seeing the uh, 24th century continue. Because as we've talked about before, Kirsten Byers' uh, Voyager book is going to kick off next year. So, ending the year with the 24th century and beginning the year with 24th century. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, me too. I'm glad to see that. So um, watch, watch for this coming out. Work your way through the fall. And uh, then as we go along, we're going to have authors on. Of course, we had David R. George III on last week, and, and we have Una coming up here. So uh, we're going to have everyone on as the books come out. Uh, let's move into comics, Matthew, real quick. And, oh, you know, these these press announcements about the comics, they always catch me off guard because, you know, to prepare for this show, we were reading Ongoing Number 26, which came out this week. But of course, this story is about Ongoing Number 29 coming up. And the all-new five-year mission of the Enterprise continues as apparently Captain Jane Tiberius Kirk and her crew encounter a never-before-seen enemy in deep space. And, and yes, you heard me right, Jane Tiberius Kirk. What is going on, Matthew? Uh, Chris, I really don't know, honestly. Uh, but um, uh, maybe it's his uh, sister from an alternate universe, or maybe in an alternate universe, Captain James Kirk was a woman instead of a man. 
Uh, who knows which way she swings? So this could be a very, very <laughs> interesting comic. Uh, we may be yeah, getting until into she that. sees Zara. Exactly. We may be getting into that after dark uh, comic series. We finally, <laughs> we've always wondered if they they would do. So no, I, I this it's it's really intriguing. I, I like that there aren't really any spoilers here, other than what. You know what's what, what's going well, I on? I have my here. own theory. Yeah, I have my own theory, Ooh, Matthew. What is it? We don't know what happens at the end of the current four-part comic about the Kittimer conflict. I think that after Kirk, is, when he escapes from the Klingons, which I think is going to happen, the Romulans will capture him, perform a sex change operation oh. on him, and then return him to the Enterprise, and he will become Captain Jane Tiberius Kirk. From here forward in the Abramsverse, Captain Kirk's going to be a woman. Yeah, wow, goodness. That is going to be interesting if that happens. (laughs) Uh, I wondered if you were going to mention this exchange idea. Um, So, hey, who knows? Anything is possible in the JJ-verse. Well, it worked for Spot on The Next Generation. Why not Kurt? That's true. Although with Spot, it's a little less obvious. But, you know, whatever. (laughs) That's true. Well, you know, you've always pictured Kurt growing his hair out, right? That, yeah. I don't know. Chris Pine with longer hair. Huh, that's a good question. We should Google that. I'm sure we'll find it somewhere. <laughs> this is what Photoshop is for. Exactly. Matthew. We need to get Char on that. Or or we could just get Mariel because, well, as we all know, she loves looking at pictures of Chris Pine. So pretty sure she, oh, if yeah. there's a long-haired picture of Chris Pine, she's found it. Yeah, Trek Film News writer Mariel Kieran will do anything to look at pictures of Chris yeah. Pine. Yeah, so here Kirk, we go, Chris. We, seems, we've so got a story Seems for right her. up her alley. We do, we do. Okay, so this is going to be coming out. Also coming out is going to be con number four. Now, we've only read con number one so far, so we don't know what happens in two and three yet. But what we know from the press release here is that The Secrets of Khan's Revival in the Future by Admiral Marcus and the Agents of Section 31 will finally be revealed in number four. So the eugenics wars are over. Number four is going to take us into that future time frame that we saw in Into Darkness. And that's that's what we know so far. Yeah, this this will be exciting. I think we all kind of wanted to see uh, this in the film, you know, kind of know more about what happened with uh, Khan getting w- woken up and, and how Section 31 found him and, and maybe even just a little bit more background on this Section 31 and Admiral Marcus. I think that would be great. So... This looks exciting. This will be the the final in this series. So it's going to be, I I think, a a great thing to to be able to finally get this full understanding of who this con is and why he's like this. And and in the background of, of, you know, somebody like Admiral Marcus, who I thought, you know, underutilized in the film in the sense of a villain since he kind of turns into being the main villain. I, I would have loved to have seen more of him. Right. I wonder if number three is going to have any lead-in involving Section 31 and Marcus, or if it's going to be all Khan up through the first three, and then the fourth one is just going to jump us into the time when I guess they find the Botany Bay floating in space. Because he says in the movie, right, that he was found in the ship, and and so those events played out, but it just wasn't the Enterprise that found him. It was Starfleet, and um, I, I, I don't think it was Admiral Marcus who personally found him. That wasn't my impression from the film, but 
they take him back to Earth, I guess. Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see what happens. And so this is this is a good series already so far. We both love number one. Hopefully, two, three, and four will just uh, continue to hold up those high standards that one set for us. Yeah. So number two in the Kittimer Conflict series, which we just kind of mentioned, you know, which is going to lead to Kirk's sex change operation at the hands of the Romulans, apparently, at least in my timeline it is, came out this week and we've read that. And so we're going to pick up Matthew here and talk a little bit about the continuation of this story involving the Klingons and the Romulans and Section 31. And I went back and read quickly through the first issue again before reading the new one to refresh my memory on just what had happened. And then we picked right back up with the fact that at the end of the first one, the Klingons, core in fact, has captured Kirk and the landing party, has them on the ship, and then we jump right into the action. Yeah, this is, uh, I love this series so far. I'm finding it really exciting uh, because I don't know what's going to happen. I I don't have any idea where they're going to take this and how it's going to work. Um, I do enjoy seeing uh, Core here. Uh, one, it's a, it's a great callback to the original series. Um, and I just have to say too, Chris, I don't know about you, but I really love the artwork in here. It held me captivated the whole time. The characters um, aren't perfect, but they, they look really good. You know, nothing really pulled me out. Uh, so the fact that, um, you know, too, they just start the, the, the this issue right where the other one left off. You know, Kirk has been taken, uh, and he's on Kor's bridge, beaten to a bloody pulp, as this new Kirk usually is. And, uh, you know, now Kor is negotiating with Spock what they're going to do, whether they're going to, um, you know, fight or flight. And um, I, I, re- I really like this. Uh, and I think what was really interesting was was the way that Spock deals with this, the, his idea that Kor uh, is showing them some strange mercy. You know, he, he expects most, cl- mm-hmm. you know, any Klingon would have just blown him out of the sky. And uh, I like that Spock is wisely playing on the fact that there's something else about this core that's a little bit different. Um, And I think that's going to be interesting to watch play out in the series. Yeah. Well, it is interesting. And again, I'm pretty much on record as at least aesthetically not being a big fan of what J.J. Abrams has done with the Klingons in the Abrams verse. But we often talk about how the Klingons in Star Trek are fairly two-dimensional compared to some of the other races. And even in Enterprise, the way they portrayed the Klingons was very much that way. You know, they're warriors and that's kind of it. So it was interesting to me here in the conversation that Spock is having with Kor that, and again, we should let everyone know, spoiler alert, we are going to talk about a bit of what happens here. So if you haven't read it, you might want to grab it and read uh, real quick before you continue on. But there's having this conversation and Kor says, how like the Federation to presume we Klingons are simply animals that fight without thought or reason. And I, it was an interesting twist there for me. I wasn't quite expecting that, but they are already portraying the Klingons as being more than just warriors who are out to conquer anyone in their path. There actually is some Thing else going on here yeah and i think that's what's uh kind of interesting in this um 
this comic is you're getting uh, the Romulan side where um, they seem to be kind of one-dimensional, just the duplicitous Romulans, and yet Core uh, here is kind of showing us that you know he's a thinking man's Klingon. He's not just a brute, uh, and I do like that. I think it's really smart of them to do that and, and give us something different. I, you know, I was thinking, wouldn't it be kind of interesting, Chris? Is it in this Kinemir Chords if one of the Daxes shows up? Maybe Curzon, but Curzon's a woman in this, uh, or something like that. I just, you know, I'm just wondering if they'll throw uh, him in there, or, or at least Dax in there, since he's part of the uh, the the Kittimer Accords uh, in the background. Right. And so, that's true. Uh, I'd be really yeah. interested to see if they did that because that would be a lot of fun. I think it wouldn't surprise me if they did. You know, they've already brought in other characters from the past. Uh, even in this comic yeah so th- that could work I, I you said you liked the artwork and i was going to mention that uh i would say the artwork had me reasonably captivated until i got to page 19 and then it got me really captivated the first time we really get to see zara up close oh yeah yeah definitely <laughs> um i agree with you that man I, and, and and two i love the joke that kirk makes remind me to take you on every away mission where we get captured <laughs> that's right <laughs> very very funny um so very specific <laughs> so yeah exactly just the ones where we're going to get captured which with this kirk is always um so i i like that uh you know spock is able to is, is able to warp out go to safety uh you know uh go to i believe it's k11 uh space station yeah, k11 yeah and um you know, uh, you know, at this point, Core is hoping that he runs, and um, then he interrogates Kirk uh, a little bit, and he won't give him any information, and none, neither will any of the people with him. Um, and again, there's a scene in here, and I think it's, let's see, I believe it's page 10, and where Core is holding Carol's face looks just like Alice yeah. Eve. So really well done artwork here. Yeah, I feel like, uh, well, you know, the Chris Pine artwork is is really good as well. But one thing I noticed even in the first issue of the Kinemore Conflict is, is that Alice Eve's likeness is just really spot on in here. Yeah, which is really cool for the characters to be able to see. So then the Romulans... Uh, show back up, and uh, they are talking to Section 31. Section 31 has these brand new fancy-ass right. ships, which I'm not going <laughs> to lie to you, Chris. They're ugly. Um, Do you think they're ugly? Oh, gosh. I thought, well, they're definitely weird-looking. It looks and, like something out of Babylon what? 5. Okay, and that's, yeah. That's not yeah, a compliment. Yeah. So, But at the same time, I will say that they do have a Starfleet feel to them, just in the design. You know, you've got the basic round. It's not a saucer, but you've got the basic round front. You've got the nacelles, even though they're not in the same position. Yeah. And you've got the blue glow. Yeah. And it's you see them and you know, okay, that's Starfleet, but I've never seen those before. And whoever designed those ships is up to no good. Exactly. Uh, that they do let you know that these are bad guy Starfleet ships. That's right. Like if they had come out of some sort of alternate universe, no, no, they're just 
the Section 31 ships. And so, um, yeah. and apparently, too, uh, they have some sort of stealth technology which al- allows them to be able to stay in the shadows, quote unquote, even in space. Uh, so that's well, quite interesting. Well, I was wondering here do we know at this point, do the Romulans have? cloaking technology in the Abrams verse at this point, because when I read that page, I kind of felt like they were implying that Section 31 has cloaking technology and the Romulans don't, and that that's how the Romulans are going to get it. Yeah, that's something that's really interesting. Uh, I kind of wondered that as well, and if that's the case, I think it's um, it's a great way to go. It's, it's very different. And so... Um, you know, I have no problem with them kind of playing around with that idea here uh, that Section 31 was able to get cloaking technology either because of something they got an idea from Khan or something they've stolen or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is this is really cool to see. And then, of course, um, we get Spock being back at the station and they're having a conference, a, a staff meeting. And, uh, you know, they they tell Spock, you know, you did exactly what you should have done, uh, but I can't let you go back and look for Kirk, um, and I can't let you go try and rescue him. And so uh, I thought that was uh, an interesting call. Uh, that's... Are you very suspicious of these two admirals? I guess they're admirals on the screen. One of them's definitely an admiral. Are you suspicious that they're involved in the Section 31 bit, and that's why they don't want Spock to go after Kirk? Well, I'm not suspicious right now. Um, maybe I should be. But I I mean, I, I feel like their reasons were valid, you know, very valid. We don't want you going after him because we have a feeling that that's going to, you know, um, is exacerbate the conflict. Um, now, per the end of the comic where section 31 does show up on Kronos. I don't know that that's a great question. <laughs> I would hate to think we would have just another bad apple admiral. Um, seems like they already did that with Marcus and, and uh, they shouldn't play that card too many times. Yeah. Well, but it might not be playing a card if your entire hand is full of bad morals, which seems to be bad the case morals. at Starfleet yes. Command. Uh, your entire hand is full of bad morals. Um, <laughs> goodness. That's very true. I mean, but I'd hate to, oh man, I got, I guess I'd also hate to think that that much of Starfleet is, you know, terrible in this. Um, yeah. So who knows? I, I don't know. So, well, so they go on, and of course, we've got Yuki here, Yuki Sulu, and yeah, they have a conversation. Yeah, and then they go on to, they bring Khan back into it, which again, I thought was, I mean, it's not unexpected, but they're, rather than Khan being Mm -hmm. into darkness, being just a one-off thing, they are still using his presence on Kronos as the the catalyst for this animosity, growing animosity between the Klingons and the humans, more so the Klingons directed at the humans, but but there's Khan. It's almost like in Star Trek Four when the Klingons bring up Kirk's image on the screen and they're like, I give you Admiral James T. Kirk, the architect of this. And here's Khan on the big screen. Yeah, in fact, you know, that actually might be what they were thinking, Chris, Then and uh, actually kind so, of yeah. using that. And so I, I think it's great that they're 
they're really utilizing the film and creating a bigger and more um, vibrant world because of it. And it's 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 good story writing to continue to to use a great thread point like that. And uh, and also bringing in the original film with this whole idea that these Klingon ships, they've been upgraded by the Narada that they've had, that they studied for so long, all of those things playing into what we saw even in the Nero comic. So they are really pulling a lot of things in here to create this and goodness, why wasn't this the movie? Uh, yeah, I was thinking that too. I was, I, I was thinking that I really enjoy this story because, as you mentioned at the beginning, we we don't know where it's going. It's really an original story, and it's involving Earth, Romulans, Klingons, Section Thirty-One. You've got Kirk captured. You've got. Spock trying to be captain of the Enterprise. It's just got everything going on, and it really would make an exciting movie. I think a better movie than Into Darkness. Well, yeah, um, and you've got Zara. So, I mean, and you got Zara. Yeah. yeah, exactly. This should be the film. In fact, I don't understand why they're doing this in the comic. I don't understand why this just isn't the third movie. Um, it seems like it would be fantastic, and maybe it's just too complicated for a film going back and forth and trying to introduce all of this stuff to people who don't know Klingons and Romulans and all of that. But man, is it good. So, uh, maybe so. Yeah. So you get to the, you know, that Kirk's not going to tell them anything. They're being taken into a prison in Kronos, a deep, it looks like, uh, underneath Kronos. And then voila, the Romulans attack. Zara has gotten out of her handcuffs um, which apparently she's really good at. Kirk might want to watch out for that. Um, and uh, they are able to escape, and as they're running out, they run into Kor, who says, I knew it was the humans, and bum, 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 Section 31 shows up. Yeah. So, and then it says to be continued, which I was really disappointed in because it's such a good comic. I, I You know, I... I know that this is the middle part of the story, but I don't feel like they're leaving me um, lax in any way. I mean, they're, they're not pulling any punches. They're really building the story. I don't feel like this is filler at all. Um, the only part I thought maybe was filler was the whole uh, Sulu-Yuki thing. But other than that, this is, a, this is good stuff. This is what I really had hoped that After Darkness was going to be. And they're finally doing it in the Kittimer conflict, and I'm so glad everybody needs to go uh, uh, get the Kittimer conflict series because it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. So that is Kittimer conflict number two. Now we have to wait another month for Kittimer <laughs> conflict number three to come out and find out what's going to happen next and uh, what's going to go on here with the with section thirty one. I, I did find it. I, I guess if I really think about it, maybe it makes sense, but it's they are kind of taking Section 31 from being this shadowy kind of spy organization or someone who's kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes, which is what we've always thought of them as being, to being a, a larger organization that has their own special starships, and now they come and they actually send ground forces down to enemy planets, and that's... Yeah, they're it's a little bit of a change for Section Thirty One, but they're definitely reminding me more of a, a Obsidian Order or, or a Tal Shiar 
um, yeah, more so like than that. just the what we thought of the section thirty one that's in the shadows and and those kind of things. I mean, and not that that's terrible or bad. Um, you know, I think it, in this universe we need to do some things that are different and um, taking those ideas from what we've seen through other uh, other powers and kind of using them for section thirty one works. So I'm okay with that. Yeah, that's um, it, it. It works for me too, in this context. So. That's all we have for news today, Matthew. And as we told everyone last week, we were planning this week to do the Deep Space Nine short story Horn and Ivory, which is from Gateway's book number seven, which picks up the loose threads at the end of Demons of Air and Darkness that we did last week. But as it turns out, we were very fortunate to be able to get some time from Una to talk about her book in the fall series. And so Matthew was able to interview Una, and that's going to be our feature for today. So we'll be back next week to pick up with Horn and Ivory. And I hope this week everyone enjoys the feature with Una. But before we get to that feature, Matthew, let's tell everyone about our sponsor for this week's show, Squarespace. Squarespace is the web's best hosting in CMS that makes it simple for you to create your own blog, website, or portfolio. And also, Squarespace makes it extremely easy to sell items online with the integrated commerce feature. Now, this is something we've talked about before. We've talked about the deal they made with Stripe to integrate it into the system. And Squarespace Commerce is now available in a number of different countries, including the US, UK, Canada, Australia, Belgium, France, Germany, Ireland, the Netherlands, and Spain. And the list of countries is expanding all the time. And commerce allows you to sell both digital and physical products online. And the 30-second merchant sign-up gives you instant approval, and it does not require any paperwork, which is really fantastic. And you can begin receiving money for purchases via direct deposit in moments. And full tax and shipping rules by region also help you run your store. Plus, the order management interface lets you easily track outstanding orders, resend customer update emails, and print packing slips from a single interface. You can even move your existing Shopify or Big Cartel inventory over to Squarespace with just a few clicks. And you know, Matthew, I was thinking, because you can sell physical products as well, next year at the Texas State Fair, I think you should go and collect all the different fried foods and uh, resell them on your Squarespace Commerce site. It might sound a little bit disgusting, but... You know, I, I think that it would work. You could sell them. People could refry them, get a little <laughs> sample of the Lone Star State. Well, you know, I could do that, and hopefully they would, uh, you know, be <laughs> shipped to the person expediently so that they could yes. get that. Uh, I, I don't know how that would work. Who, uh, who knows? But, um, yeah, we, we can try it. Well, you know, here in Japan, we do have special courier trucks for cold or frozen items. So... You just go to the state fair, you know, you get that deep fried Nutella you were talking about, take it home, freeze it, sell it. Everyone can uh, take part <laughs> in the state fair. It'd be fantastic. <laughs> okay. But I'm sure that most people will have more reasonable uses for Squarespace commerce. And the best way to find out how you can sell your items is to try it free for yourself for 14 days. There's no credit card required. The commerce plan is $24 per month. And if you want to do a website, a blog, or a portfolio, or any other kind of space you can think of, those plans start at just $8 per month and $16 for unlimited, which gives you absolutely everything that you need. There's no separate fee for hosting or for content management. It's all one unified platform. And as a Trek of Film listener, you can save 10% off your lifetime purchase on new accounts by using offer code TREK10. 
Plus, if you choose the annual plan, you can get a free custom domain registration as well. So that's statefairdeepfriedfood.com. I'm sure that's probably <laughs> available. It doesn't sound like something anyone would have registered before. So Matthew, you can get that for yourself by choosing the annual plan. So everyone, just go over to squarespace.com and try it for free. I know you're going to love it. And then when you sign up, be sure to use offer code TREK10 to get that 10% discount off your lifetime purchase. And we really thank Squarespace for their support of Trek FM. And we thank you for your support of Squarespace. Today, I'm really excited to be talking with Una McCormick about her brand new book, The Crimson Shadow, which is the second book in the fall series, which will be five novels when it's complete. And this one centers around uh, the Federation and Cardassia and their alliance. Now, part of this book takes place concurrently with David R. George III's first book. And then following that is the fallout on the other half of the book the big event that happens that we talked about with David a few weeks ago. And so, Una, first, I just wanted to welcome you back to the show. I love having you on. And I have to say, you know, I'm going to be a bit biased because I really liked this book. Um, and I think that <laughs> I've read a few, uh, a kind of a few reviews. I, You know, when I have to write my own review, I try not to read other people's because I don't want to be influenced but yeah. a couple of places I saw, and I completely agree with this sentiment, that this book really transcends um, the genre that it's in, which is tie-in fiction. Um, I, I think the what you're doing with Cardassia here is really something that you would see in a Brave New World or something like that, a Fahrenheit 451, where you're really trying to get a message across that transcends the medium that you're writing in and sci-fi really allows you to do that. So I just wanted to first thank you for, I think making this book even more important for the series, but also just Star Trek in general and, and really living up to its best principles. Well, thank you very much. Those are very flattering comparisons. So uh, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. Um, yes. I, 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 I all, everything seemed to come together with this book. It's a, it's a, it's a book that I barely remember writing actually. <laughs> I, I remember um, I sort of wrote it in two in two um, uh, sort of great bursts. Uh, one one before Christmas, I think, and then and then one. Oh, I must have finished up just after Christmas. I was I was finishing it up on my birthday, and um, I remember sitting down to it again after the Christmas break and going, "Oh, I'm sure I've got loads left to do." And then I looked at it and went, oh, "Blimey, this is nearly finished." And um, I, I I had no memory of writing about. 55 60,000 words so um wow. what whatever was happening it's it it clearly this was a story that um had been lurking around in my head or had had, had really done some good subconscious growing and and I just sat down and described what my subconscious was thinking so um I'm I'm really pleased I I think sometimes you just get a feeling that um books are going really well and 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 you're being carried along with it uh, I had the same with never ending sacrifice um, Brinkmanship was a harder write, I think, because I haven't been writing Trek for a while. But this one, I, I, I don't remember writing it, so <laughs> she's good. <laughs> so I'm, I'm delighted you enjoyed it. Yeah, it does seem like um, this book that everything you know really fits together really well. It fits together with what you know you saw in, in David's book, which is always fantastic mm. when you're reading a series to have things kind of intertwine. And I did kind of wonder, you know, because David mentions in his book, you know, that the Enterprise being sent off to mm. Cardassia, and so you, I knew that part of this book would take place concurrently, which is kind of hard to do. And I loved just in the story 
you come up with that, you know what's going to happen to these characters in the sense that something terrible is going to happen to them. They're going to get the news, which happened to Bako, and uh, it, it's going to change everything. Yeah, I knew that was a bit of a risk because it's the first third of my book is is you know concurrent with um, with David's. So I thought, you know, am I going to be able to carry um, the readers with me? Are, you know, they they've signed up for this story arc, and what I'm doing is giving them thirty thousand words where we we don't really go back to the main story at all. We just you know we're we're, we're devoted to a completely different story. Um, so I, what I hoped, and it, I thought it was very important to the conception of these books, was that um, the stories themselves in the individual books would have sufficient kind of weight and pace that you're so absorbed in that that that's carrying you through. So um, I, I was a bit, I, I thought oh, I'm going to hand in this manuscript, and that, and uh, you know, my editor's going to go, you know, we've got to get going on the main story much sooner. But um, but nope, seemed, it seemed to work. But it, it's a third of the book that's. Um, before we, we find out what's happened um, in David's book. So uh, I, I can talk spoilers, can't I? <laughs> I guess Definitely, it, we're going to, yeah. we, we can talk spoilers. We, we did with yeah. David's book. We're going to do it with each of the authors. We want to give you all free cool. reign to be able to talk sure. uh, specifically about your book. Hopefully, you know, we still hope to have everybody, as many of the authors on afterwards, so you can kind of all talk about the, the big parts of the story without having to worry yeah. about, oh, I can't talk about David's uh, Max book yet because and that has to come out. <laughs> I can't talk about anything that James is going to do because I know I've read it or, you know, of course, at the end, Dayton, you know. In fact, right now I'm staying away from all the blurbs from yes, Dayton's yeah. book because uh, some of them are quite spoilery and I, I don't yeah. want to know. I, I'm really enjoying not knowing. And this book, I, I you know, I read, I think, um, the very first blurb that you had. Um, come out mm. and and then I didn't read anything else because I didn't want to know and I found it much more enjoyable because the story really does have a few surprises in it which we'll get to throughout the interview which I thought you did really yeah. well and so good um, oh I did enjoy writing those <laughs> <laughs> it, I bet those those were fantastic so for you okay you you said this had kind of been percolating in the back of your mind for a while and you, you just kind of spilled mm. out this book so. Tell me just kind of the genesis of your story when you look back of it. You know, you you knew what David was going to do. You knew kind of okay. The the um the publisher is kind of looking for this Archduke, Archduke Ferdinand moment. Um, and yeah. then we're going to kind of carry that forward. Uh, tell me a little bit just about okay. You're you're the second book, and you kind of have a launch off where you start in the middle of David's book. Mm. How did this come together for you? Um, I, I guess there are uh, lots of components. I, I knew that I, I, I've wanted to do a, a post-war Cardassian novel for some time. So I, I knew that I wanted to, after Lotus Flower, and then little bits of um, Neverending Sacrifice. You don't really see Cardassia Prime with Neverending Sacrifice. Uh, I knew that there was that there was scope for a story there, that if we, if we were going to look at Cardassia Prime again um, a little while after the Dominion War, um, there'd be lots to write about, you, not just about the um, physical reconstruction, which is one of the themes of the book, but about the, the social reconstruction as well. So I, I, I knew that there was a good story there, and it's kind of been hanging around in my head for, for some time, actually, since a um, few years, actually. Um, and um, I, I knew it would have to be uh, involve a police um, constable of some kind, police detective. Um, because police stories are good about um, what police stories do is that they, they ask you to think about um, 
uh, well, obviously law and order, but also about corruption. What's what's right? What's wrong? It's a it's a particular kind of thing that I think crime novels do very well. So I'd I'd had this idea of a a, a post-war um, Cardassian detective for some time. I think I've been reading. Um, there's a, a crime uh, thriller writer called Philip Kerr who writes. A, he has a character called Bernie Gunter, who's um, a, a policeman during the rise of the Nazis. And oh then, goodness! Um, yeah, and what a brilliant, uh, a brilliant. It's one of those premises where you go, "Damn, I wish I'd thought of that." <laughs> that's, that's so great. And he he did a series of, of really good, really good novels um, that he's still working on. Actually, it's gone post-war now. Um, okay. And uh, so, so Bernie's through the war and that kind of thing. And I thought, uh, yes, that's a that's a really good source of um, uh, moral dilemma or uh, mm, complication. Mm, definitely. Uh, so I sort of roughly had this idea, and then when the idea of um, the fall came up, um, and Margaret got the Margaret Clark, the editor, got the um, the five of us uh, signed up. We were sharing around the projects, and um, we kind of went, well, let's let's take a ship each. And David obviously really wants to do Deep Space Nine. He's doing, you know, all, all this work there. And, oh, definitely. Um, yeah, and um, others, you know, picked up Titan or so on and so on. And it, it kind of shut down with a kind of looking at me and went, um, oh, well, it looks like you're going to end up with um, Picard and Garrick. And I'm going, oh, what a shame. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, that's, that's just uh, terrible. I'm heartbroken about that. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to... What a dreadful thing! So I'm gonna I'm gonna have to take the Enterprise to Cardassia Prime. That's that's gonna break my heart. So um, uh, that was just irresistible. I, I think because we, we know Garrick and we've we've seen Garrick in operation with Cisco, uh, who he, he's mm. able to just wind up incredibly easily and get a reaction. Well, and and what a great dynamic! I mean, the, exactly. the fact because yeah. they can kind of go toe to toe in a completely yeah. different way than you get, you know. Picard and, and Garrick going toe-to-toe. Exactly, um, yeah. With Picard, yeah. you feel that Garrick has got someone who's genuinely an intellectual equal, kind of a, right. a cerebral as well, red. As, um, it's a different kind of intelligence. Garrick's is very um, dynamic and on the fly, and I think that um, Picard's intelligence mm-hmm. is very considered and measured, uh, very right. reflective. Um, but these are these are two people who who are intelligent enough to have the measure mm-hmm. of each other and quite a sophisticated measure of each other. And, well, um, and, and talking about the Cisco and, and Garrick dynamic, you know, you kind of have two guys who um, I think their loyalty to their people and to their principles uh, is, is quite the same. You know, Cisco is yeah. completely sold out to the Federation and its ideals. And we see that throughout the series. You know, Garrick is mm. completely sold out to his his belief in the, in the Cardassians, but in 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 a way that doesn't mirror his his people anymore. You know, he's he's got a new idea of what they should be, mm. um, and that plays out throughout this book. And I thought that was really interesting because you get that um, dynamic of these two guys who really do believe in their their people, um, yeah, and the best of their people, and and sometimes uh, willing to do whatever it takes for their people, and and so. For me, Gar- Garrick and, and Cisco were always mirrors for each other. Yeah. And uh, Picard and, and and Garrick are a very different type of mirror for each other, and I love mm. that interplay. Thank you. Good. I'm, I'm, I was really pleased. I think there's a lot of there's a great deal of antagonism between Cisco and Garrick, and I think it's to do with that mirroring that Cisco fears that he yes. has the capacity to be Garrick, which, as we yes. discover, he does. 
and Garrick is almost goading him into this. And there's, you know, there's quite a lot of physical violence between, you know, he yes. really punches the lights out of him. But Picard, <laughs> it's, yeah, <laughs> Picard, it's completely different. Picard, it's almost like Picard is the challenger in that relationship. Um, it's it's Garrick that has to live up to um, Picard's um, cautious offer of friendship. Uh, right. And I, I, th yes. I, I think Garrick wants Picard's respect. Uh, and um, you know, whereas I don't, I don't think he wants Cisco's respect. I don't think he respects Cisco. So um, it, it was a really, really interesting pair of people to put together, and um, interesting to put them. They have to work together, but the, the, you know, Picard is obviously suspicious. I mean, you know, Picard has very good reasons not to feel comfortable around Cardassians, um, and uh, to have to, particularly, you know, having been tortured by Cardassians and having mm, to deal with yes. a man that he knows has been a torturer. Uh, it involves mm. a lot of self-control. I mean, Picard is very good at self-control. So mm. um, so when I was kind of given the assignment of Picard and Garrick, it's like, oh, I'm going to struggle. <laughs> oh, I'm going to have oh, to really, definitely. you know, uh, sit down and be miserable with this. So, um, yeah, I, I was thrilled to, thrilled to bits to get that. Uh, and then that became the kind of core of the book, I think, um, that play between them. And I don't think they are antagonistic at any point. I think it is two men trying mm -hmm. to work together, but obviously Definitely. having loyalties to, um, you know, Picard has specific loyalties to the new president, to um, Starfleet, to the Federation, uh, and finds himself in a situation where his allies are um, not so allied mm. after all. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and what was great about it, I thought too, was that um, one, you could tell in their interactions, I feel like you can tell that Picard has read probably Cisco's uh, reports on Garrick. And that's one of the reasons yeah. that he's so trepidatious about this, you know, he, he moving very cautiously. And two, you could see that um, Picard at the same time has some of those Cisco's characteristics where he's willing to break the rules, take the chance, be that kind of Kirk type character where he's mm. going to do what he feels is best. And and Picard really pulled that off in this book for me of being that um, that diplomat and that cowboy all at the same time, uh, which yes. is probably, I think, as Picard has grown up in the books um, and David has really taken him this way, um, yeah. uh, David Mack, uh, Picard has become more of the cowboy in his later years, I think, because of his love of family, his finding out what's really important uh, and yes. having that change happen. I think it's been really good because he's still the Picard we love, but he's added this other layer that I think makes him one of the greatest captains we've ever seen. I think now yeah. more so yeah. than he was in the series or in the movies. Um, just really love that character more so than yeah. I ever did, you know, when he was on screen. Yeah, I mean, he's quite—he's obviously quite stiff in the show, and um, I mean, he's—he's he's performed that way. Is it Ian e. Forster who says, "If it was a choice between betraying my friends and betraying my country, I hope I'd have the guts to betray my country." I, th right. I think it's Forster. I might be—I might be forgetting this. And I think this is where um, where Picard's narrative has gone. And you're absolutely right that the minute that there's family, that complicates um, where his loyalties will lie. This is why dystopias always try and get rid of family ties because they, you know, they want loyalty to the state. Um, so the minute that's there, I think Picard uh, mm. suddenly has more claims on his emotions, his, um, his, his desires, his loyalties. 
Um, so it's it's very subtly done, and I think that was. Um, but at the same time, he's a he's a Starfleet man, you know. Exactly. Man who's absolutely committed to this organisation. Of course, Starfleet's been a bit. Certainly in the books, it's been a little. Um, a little bit grayer than it has been in the past. Exactly. Well, and when and we last saw him in um, Brinkmanship, he was, you know, uh, treading a fine line with um, yes. various things that were going on. Well, and yeah. I think it's made him a better captain, personally. Mm. I, I really think family has taken him and making him a better captain um, because mm. he does have more than just duty and honor to live for. And there's something about, and you talk about this, and I want to get into it later, but you, you do this thing with the idea of love um, and how it can either be a really big asset or it can twist and destroy um, mm. into something, you know, disgusting, which we get, mm. you know, racism and, and um, xenophobia and all those kind of things from. Uh, and, and so for Picard, I think his love for family has, has, has increased his love for peace and freedom and the Federation and, and fighting for what's right. And, and that's really where that's taken him, and I think, and made yeah. him a better character. Yeah. Whereas before, the institution would not be sufficient. It would be, uh, right. it would it would be constraining his love in a way. It's it's exactly. much more rule bound, or um, exactly. it, it's not a sufficient thing to love an institution. Um, you've got to love the people who make that institution up, which I put in the book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 oh, oh man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. Um. Well, okay. So I kind of wanted to move a little bit this way. You know, David does mm. the. Uh, Archduke Ferdinand moment and mm. we talked a little bit about him with how history is kind of um, influencing you know our history is influencing the storyline here now for you uh, I felt like there were quite a few real world influences on your book and I would just I you know I saw quite a few of them what were some of the ones that you used for this book Oh well, absolutely. Post-war Europe. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's and post-war Germany. I mean, yes. in, in the back of my mind, um, uh, that that's always and we're, we're presented with this on screen. I think we're, we're given the Cardassians as, as Nazis and we're given the Dominion War as World War Two mm-hmm. because it's the gen- the generation of writers who are writing Deep Space Nine. I are processing the experiences of um, uh, yes. perhaps parents or grandparents who who fought in World War Two, uh, probably grandparents. So, um, I mean, we're, we're given Cardassia in the Dominion War as, as Germany and um, World War II. So, and um, uh, this ties in with what I was saying about, you know, thinking about the Philip Kerr novels, the um, Bernie Gunter novels. So it, it was always um, the reconstruction of Germany that I had in mind. This process of um, what, what do you do when you've, you've, you've got a country that um, you've destroyed uh, you've you've beaten in war. Um, how do you reconstruct this when you're looking at a country and going, but all the people, all the people that we have here are in some way, to a, a greater or lesser degree, implicated with what has happened. Well, first of all, you've got to sort out the real criminals, you know, the, the psychopaths, the murderers. You've got to find these people and punish them. And at the same time, you have to go through, well, you know, the word they use, denazification. You've got to find the everyone who is in the middle levels and go, well, what processes went wrong here? Um, who is culpable of holding a gun and firing it and, and, and actually killing people? But how do we think through guilt and culpability and responsibility through something, um, um, through a big institution, through a big uh, social group? And that takes a lot of reflection, uh, a lot of um, commitment from the people on the ground, uh, a lot of courage, I think, from a lot of post-war Germans to kind of go, well, 
you know we've got to we've got to accept what happened here and um, and commit to having it not happen ever again and, and Germany of course turns out to be extremely successful it's got a few problems at the moment I think with them um, kind of coping with um, Turkish immigrants and so on but obviously nothing on the scale of what we're seeing in um, in Greece so that right. was that was obviously a model and then the other thing I think that was in my mind was was precisely this the kind of things that are happening in um, uh, the sort of uh, uh, as as the European Union's under under strain at the moment um, because of the um, recession, these resurgence of far right parties that we're seeing. So I was imagining a Cardassia that was um, uh, at a sort of pressure point moment. It's done a lot of good work. We're about ten years after the Dominion War now. It's done a lot of good work, um, but the chance or the the possibility of regression is there um, and uh, you you can you could imagine this happening very easily that people would go well how long you know I wasn't involved in this war I didn't do any of these things how long am I going to have to uh, be expected to uh, carry the can you know I was I was 12 years old or um, I was 15 I wasn't even in the army I was I was just bombed and you know my parents were shot by Jem Hadar so why am I being punished and of course these people would be in their 20s now, um, so they'd be becoming political actors. And if there's poverty, which there might still be, then that would provide the kind of breeding ground for a new kind of nationalism. So it was, it was that combination of reflecting on post-war Europe and reflecting on what's currently happening, uh, particularly in places like Greece, and thinking, well, let's think what these pressures are and let's, let's think them through and what kind of solutions um, People might try, somebody like Eric might try um, to prevent uh, Cardassia going nationalist again. So I guess mm. those, were the, those were the real world um, uh, examples that I had in mind. Yeah, I think they're pretty clear. You sort of, you yeah, know, you can, you can see Germany in there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, uh, and I was thinking. Oh, we, we also you know, have a bit of far right stuff in Britain at the moment. So I was, I was yes. sort of purging myself. And then there are a few jokes for British readers who who will recognise um, <laughs> some of our, our news broadcasters and that kind of thing. So um, you pick up what, whatever's current, you pick it up and you stick it in. I think. <laughs> um, one of the things that I thought was really great is is that you, you know, I saw that uh, that idea of you know Germany in, in its mm. decision. And so for me though, I was thinking actually between. You know, Germany after World War One, which obviously, you know, uh, David had used uh, the beginning of World War One. So I was thinking it was, you know, it's mm. a combination of Germany at, when they get the Treaty of Versailles and the yeah. Germany after World War Two, kind of a combination of those yeah. two, because you're really dealing with um, this Cardassia first is very much, again, this Nazi-ish type of regime who wants and then, of course, the this big spoiler that behind all of this mm -hmm. is this Cardassian true way that the Obsidian yeah. Order was created to help, you know, keep a check on. Mm. And uh, very much this idea that this 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 thread in these people is going to keep coming back. Yeah. Which, yeah. you know, you get into in the book a lot of, of sociology um, and <laughs> the ideas of is there something inherently bad about Cardassians? that keeps twisting um, this idea of love for their their homeland, love for their people, you mm. know, a love for the fatherland, the motherland is, is, has been called in, in, in um, mm. our world over and over again. 
into racism and overpowering nationalism. Um, yeah. And I thought that that was really important because any time that's happened in any place in the world, it has not turned out well here mm-hmm. on Earth. And obviously playing out for the Cardassians, it's it's never turned out well. Yeah. And you keep having, for the Cardassians, they're once more kind of the quote unquote bad guys. Yeah. They, they're trying to make a change in their society. And yet their society is stuck in this loop of keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, which is crazy. Yeah. Never ending sacrifice. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so now they're definitely, I, I think, in that push of like that, say, post-World War II Germany, mm. uh, we have to be different because if we keep mm. doing the same things over and over again, our society is just going to be crushed. It will be yeah, dead. It will be gone. We're going to be dead. Yeah, we'll we'll eat ourselves. Um, we'll, we'll be the you know we'll, we'll we'll drop bombs on each other and uh, and that will be the end. So that that was really the kind of um, uh, the moral dilemma I want. And it, it's natural, I think. You know, it if we we love the things that are around us, they're familiar, they're, they're safe, they're the things we know, they're the things we've learned from. Um, and I think as any any anybody who's in a sort of abusive situation knows, sometimes you love things that are not good for you. Um, and mm, I definitely. think this works at a, at a social level. You know, sometimes the, the world that you're comfortable and safe in is actually um, um, broken in some way. It's, uh, it, it isn't good for you. It's forcing you and other people in, 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 a, in a bad direction. It's giving you, um, it's making you materialist or, it, you know, it makes you chop down rainforests or something or, or covet um, uh, the new iPad or something like that. And these are, these are all lovely <laughs> and they're very comforting, but they're not necessarily a great plan for, um, for a sort of a healthy future. So um, things that are very close to us, we can love, but we can love them uncritically, I think. Um, and to uh, maintain a love for something but to be prepared to sort of say, but I, I, my part of my love of it is my ability to let it, to let it go, to let it change, mm. to let it blossom, uh, and I think that's the journey that um, that Garrick has taken. He stops being protective, um, and starts to be able to say, well, uh, if I if I keep um, holding Cardassia to myself in this way, it will be extinct, and that's not what I want. I want it alive. He 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 lets Cardassia go in a strange way, whilst becoming Castellan. <laughs> Poor Garrick is a man of um, constant sort of uh, different pulls on him, contradictions. <laughs> well, and what was great is that, you know, Garrick is uh, the personal representation of what's going to need to happen globally on Cardassia. You know, mm. uh, because. Garrick has also been uh, somebody who's been stuck in this this cycle of kind of doing the same things over and over again and, and hoping that he'll get a different result personally for his yeah. life and and realizing I think and and this was kind of the beauty is, is is how you can learn from you know different people people you wouldn't think would teach you um, you know I think he's learned from his relationship say with Julian and uh, his interactions with with Cisco. Uh, and now his interactions you see with uh, mm. somebody like um, Picard, he's learned a, a different way. Um, yes. And that it's okay to say, we don't know it all. And Cardassians and like to be know-it-alls. Um, mm. And Garrick's a great picture of that. He seems to know everything. And yet, in some ways, he knows nothing. And, and I think he's been able to say, I don't know everything and I can learn from 
somebody else. And we as Cardassians can learn from somebody else. And we yes, have exactly. to, to be able to move into this kind of alliance. We have to, to be able to survive. You know, we can't be isolationists yeah. and think that we are the best. And, yeah. um, and I think that's a really beautiful thing. And it, it just mirrors every single part of life from personal to country to global. It, it's, it's a big subject, and um, yeah. I think I think it's an important one, and definitely one that we'll all be facing probably forever um, because it's a constant oh, struggle. And it's a, it's learning humility, I guess. You know, a, a, a Garrick um, always has to have the last word, or you know, he always has to be the the smartest one in the room, uh, the one with the special knowledge. Cardassia thinks that it's culturally superior to um, everyone around it, and so that kind of uh, I, uh, ideally, you would learn this in a in a much less punishing way. But to sit amongst the ruins of your civilization and go, well, mm. that superiority thing hasn't worked out so well, takes a particular right. kind of courage. And I think Garrick is courageous. I mean, he's um, he's brutal and he's misguided often, and um, he's mistaken very often. But but he is courageous, I think. So mm -hmm. um, you know, pull myself together. Is Carter, how can I make Cardassia survive? Let's start by not killing people. <laughs> right. Seems well, to, and it's, yeah. it's the way in which suffering can teach and mold and, you know, uh, mm. a, a very um, uh, scriptural Christianity type idea that, that suffering puts you through the fire and you come mm. out refined. You know, uh, that's that's how gold is made, you know, and that's how better people are made um, is that if we take that, that suffering that a lot of times we put our own selves through because of our bad choices and we mm. learn and, and the best way, you know, this was a beautiful discussion in the book. How do you remake the soul and yeah. how do you remake the Cardassian soul specifically? And yes. the, the answer mm -hmm. is to learn from the past and make a change for the future. And yeah, it's so true for our own lives as well as, you know, on a national scale or a global scale, that the yeah. only way to move forward is to not, you know, the, the famous saying, you know, you're doomed to repeat the past if you don't learn from it. Mm. Um, and Cardassians well, have been a, doing that. And so I'm a very, very lapsed Catholic. I'm a, I'm a very ex-Catholic, but I, I found thematically <laughs> that something that I've, I've thought about quite a lot um, is this idea of um, original sin. Uh, which uh, is yeah. quite a horrible idea. When you, you know, it, it, it can kind of go two ways. You can think that's a, that's a horrible idea that we're, we're all we're kind of born flawed, you know, and there's, there's something that we can't escape. But at the same time, I, 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 I think that a, a character like Garrick has, has sort of found that a notion like that um, mm -hmm. quite comforting, that, that, mm -hmm. that there is no perfection. You can, you can strive for perfect action. Mm -hmm. You're never going to manage it, but you can, you can do the best that you can. Uh, and um, best that you can in the situation, and um, s strive for something, um, right. and, and not just cynically fall back onto uh, cruelty or um, judgment or control. So, mm -hmm. um, so I've been I've been reflecting on that concept quite a lot because yeah. you know even if you even if you stop believing in God and stop going to mass, uh, you're, you're still a Catholic culturally. So <laughs> yeah. this idea is is something that I've I've been reflecting on uh, quite a bit recently. Uh, and I think it, 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 you end up being a bit, um, certainly with a character like Garrick, I think it's, uh, if you if you kind of try and splice a concept like that on him, it gives mm -hmm. him a sense of humility. I'm never yes. going to be yeah. superior. I'm never going to be the best person here. And that and that learning 
learning that lesson, I think, is an important corrective to his his nationalism, his superiority yeah. complex. Um, so there was a little bit of that in there as well, I suspect. Yeah. Well, and and for me, uh, you know, on that that vein of that kind of spiritual idea. Um, you know, the Cardassian people aren't known for their spirituality, um, but they have this kind of, um, I think, warped sense, again, of, of love and that they've they've put all of their love into something that's really temporal, um, which yeah. is their love of country and, and, and their love of institutions instead of what we then move forward in in this book, which I thought was brilliant, is the idea of the love of the people inside the institution. It's not the institution that matters. It's the people inside. And that's a very, again, um, uh, Catholic Christianity type idea that we don't love the temporal, what 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 doesn't matter. We we love the eternal, that um, there is something Oh, eternal. that's really interesting because uh, I, th- yeah. I think that's that's coming straight from my humanism. That's, you know, there's, <laughs> there's, there's nothing beyond this that we can love. So we've, for, you know, for the love of, for the love of the God I don't believe in, we've got to love each other. You know? Yeah. So that, well, that, that yeah. seems real humanism to me. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, and we can't and love, for, uh, we can't love something um, supernatural or, or mm-hmm. um, extra temporal. We've just got to love what we've got here. And um, yeah. you know, try and try and put up with each other. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, <laughs> really and it's, interesting. Yeah, yeah, because you know, for for me on on my side, it's it's that mm. I because I know that people are eternal. It's them that matter, not everything else. You know, uh, and, and so and because I know I, that they're ephemeral, that's why they matter. But this is where we find common ground. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> From exactly. a different starting point, you find a kind of common morality. I think it's really interesting. right. And I think that's that's the kind of the beauty that we are seeing here in the book is that a, a, a place like Cardassia and, and Garrick, a character you wouldn't ever think of, mm. are, are finding common ground with somebody like the Federation where they've yeah, had yeah. two completely different types of ideas and yeah. uh and yet they are finding that it's really in the commonality it's really yes. in the the people and the people are what's important and if we're looking for the greatest good for the best number of people that's really the the, the idea of the federation um yeah. is to is to do the best good for the most amount um, and it's one and, that you really have to wrestle with. I think when I, I find mm-hmm. when I'm writing Star Trek, it's very easy. Or, or one thing that I consistently want to challenge is uh, the the Federation as um, uh, the uh, vessel of complete good. Um, right. and I think this is partly because of being a, a British viewer of an American show. So partly you're watching something which is kind of uh, presenting to you a, a set of very American values. And you're going well. These don't quite match on to culturally what what I think. You know, there's a there's a lot of overlap. Mm-hmm. So uh, and simultaneously, there's a, there's a lot of danger of cultural imperialism, which um, uh, uh, next gen begins to interrogate, and then DS9 obviously mm-hmm. interrogates. So you're you're sort of grappling with that. And I think Cardassia is a very very good um, arena to to examine the cultural imperialism of the Federation, right. or you know how how good or bad the Federation is, or um, how much Cardassia wants to take? Because Cardassia, in my mind, would never enter the Federation. It wouldn't join the Federation. It wouldn't. It would always remain Cardassia. But it would be changed by its encounter with the Federation. Um, so, um, so it's an interesting. It, it's an interesting uh, dynamic to look at. What do these very different cultures take from each other? And is there something that's that's um, 
uh, universal, a set, of, a set of values that they can share, um, or a, you know, a, a few ideas that they can share, even though they're very, very different. So, um, so that's why I, I love. We're back to the mirroring again, aren't we? So we're back to sort of Cisco and Garrick mm -hmm. and Picard and Garrick, Cardassia and the Federation mirroring each other as a, uh, a utopia and a dystopia, and um, uh, you know what what they can do in connection with each other. So um, very rich. <laughs> oh, Good definitely. subject matter. Well, I'm looking to do this stuff. It's one of those things too. Like you kind of see um, for you know somebody people who want to get married if they're really thinking about marriage. Um, well, they're realizing that, okay, to really be compatible with somebody, you need the same values, um, and, mm. and, um, you need the same basis for values to, uh, to really help you move forward. And, um, yeah. I, it's been interesting to watch the, the novels kind of take, um, the Federation and Cardassia and kind of, especially in this book, watch the Cardassians kind of move their values for freedom and democracy and free speech and all those things and have them move towards a more federation type ideal without yeah. losing what makes them Cardassian. Um, and at and the same time, you've got a character like um, uh, the the character that I put in, who's the head of the mission there, um, for want of a better word, um, Margaret Fry. Uh, she's sort yes. of the voice of saying, well, you know, I'm federation. I've been here a long time. Let me tell you what's good about Cardassia. You know, right. it's... Uh, it's dogged. It doesn't give up. It carries on beyond, you know, beyond the apocalypse. It carries on. People just go, okay, we have to build. And that has always seemed a very interesting aspect of Cardassian culture to me, a very, um, a, a very resource-poor world that simultaneously makes them quite brutal and imperialist, but at the same time gives them a, a sort of capacity for um, invention or survival or doggedness um, and uh, a, a tendency not to give up. So I think she's the voice of the um, uh, a Federation person saying, "Here's what we can learn from Cardassia," and um, and keeping on after the apocalypse is uh, is one of them. <laughs> you know, um, not giving up, um, carrying on. Well, and the idea of the that that Garrick takes from the book that he gives to Picard, the Crimson Shadow, mm. which is that. Um, that's the that's the the beauty he takes from that book is that Cardassia will continue because mm. Cardassia isn't going to be the one that conquers. Cardassia is going to be the one that gets conquered. And mm. um I thought that that was a beautiful juxtaposition for the storyline and 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 that that's what really helped remake um Garrick's soul was that he could he saw the devastation of his own people and mm -hmm. what had gotten them there, which was yeah. that idea that we are better than everybody else. So therefore yeah. we, we deserve to rule everybody else. Yeah. And that, that, that can't be the answer. And his personal complicity in mm -hmm. all of this as well. Exactly. Um, exactly. And it, and it, he, in very much a way, and I think this is maybe where your um, latent Catholicism came in, <laughs> was, um, I may have just named the show latent Catholicism. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, was that he is serving penance at this point. He, his, yes. he feels very yeah, much yeah. As, is, as if he will spend the rest of his life um, serving Cardassia because that's his way of repaying the galaxy for the evil that he has perpetrated on it. Yeah, yeah, and it and it is it is his evil. You sort of, uh, or you know, it is it is his crime. 
uh, he's the one standing on that ship with with Tane that tries to destroy the Founder's home world, and that's that's where it all starts. No, I think you're right, and it and it's a certain kind. I mean, it's a real uh, it's a real Catholic penance as well, isn't it? It's not going up into yes. a it's not going up onto a hillside and getting down on his knees and praying. It's it's real uh, grace by good works, isn't it? So you exactly. Know, I've got to atone by not retreating from the world, but getting stuck in there and um, uh, doing all the, you know, the, the dog work of um, sorting out a water supply or um, dealing with the idiots in the uh, assembly and, <laughs> and, and not strangling them or having them shot. So yeah, it's a real, it's a real um, justification by works, isn't it? Right. <laughs> yeah, latent Catholicism. Just can't help myself. <laughs> uh, well, hey, it's it's okay. It's it, I think it's the. Um... It is the power of the idea of of um, religion that it's hard to to take away, um, even if even if you don't end up believing in it. It it, it has a lot of powerful motifs, which mm. is one of the reasons that they kind of stick around. I mean, you know, the greatest stories uh, tend to kind of reflect a biblical story of of one of um, lots of times either redemption or mm. uh, ultimate sacrifice. Um, yeah, all yeah. of those things they become a really important deal and and um it's, yeah. it's what um uh, uh Tolkien talks about in the idea of you catastrophe uh that you yeah. have the 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 story get to its worst point until the turning point becomes a a a happy accident or a um yeah a, a, a happy turn of events out of the darkest turn of events and so yes exactly. it's pretty yeah. beautiful so well, I wanted to give you a chance to just kind of talk about, you know, you get to write Picard and Garrick. Mm -hmm. Just tell me about what it's like to have these master wordsmiths and negotiators kind of go at it. Well, part of you goes, um, oh, I hope I can do them justice. And and then the other part of you goes, oh, this is going to be brilliant. Let's just let's just let loose on this. <laughs> and um, they did they did surprise me with the um, with the sort of. Um, quickness with which they struck up a friendship i th i think uh, uh i i i wonder if i was suspecting a lot more antagonism between them um mm -hmm. but they they do they do very rapidly work together um and um, and the tensions really come between garrett become are, are between uh, the men and their direct superiors so you you sort of have picard um dealing with a difficult new president and then um obviously garrick with this Difficult relationship that he has with his with his head of state, who doesn't trust him and for very good reasons. Um, so uh, I I liked this idea of uh, there the being a kind of um, uh, compatriotism or you know um, fellowship between them that um, was was easier than um, uh, you know their relationship with their um, with their, their heads of state or their direct superiors. Um, and whether this is down to you know. Uh, I think you always, you, you always know you're in, you're amongst friends uh, if you walk into somebody's house and you see the big bookshelf and you go, ah, oh, a reader of books. I, you know, I feel, I, I, we, we've got common ground here, and they are readers and they are reflectors, um, and uh, I, I think that's where they find some of, some of their common ground. And I think Garrick wants Picard's respect, um, and um, I'm, I'm not sure if Picard wants Garrick's respect, but I think he's gratified to have it. Um, I, I haven't quite thought that one through. So, um, I, I mean, part, partly you were a little bit afraid that you'd that you'd get them wrong, particularly someone like Picard, who's so iconic and um, people have written really well. Uh, Garrick, I felt on safer ground with because he he just seems to 
possess me and then um, make me do his bidding whenever I write him. So, um, um, but at the same time, you want you want to um, uh, validate or acknowledge or, or work with and um, respect uh, stuff that other people have done. So there's a lot of um, Andy Robinson's book in here. Um, mm -hmm. I, I reread Stitching Time very very closely before I wrote this. So there's a lot of of reflection on that as well. You want to you want to make it feel congruent. So um, I I just seize the opportunity. Unfortunately, it it, it I I didn't get I, maybe I didn't you know panic about it and think oh my god I've got to get this right. Um, they they just they they just did the talking really and struck this this friendship up uh, that was a lot stronger and a lot quicker than I'd anticipated. I thought there'd be right. a lot more sparring, um, but well, in fact they rapidly fall rapidly become simpatico. Well, and that's something that I loved, um, you know, uh, that conversation that they have, um, Picard, you know, saying, I, you know, I can't be involved in the removal of a democratically elected leader of another government. <laughs> and Garrick says, no, why, Captain, you're no fun at all. Cisco would have been willing. <laughs> and he says, well, yes, I'm not Benjamin Cisco, yeah. uh, which I loved because that's exactly what Cisco got to say to Q, which is, well, I'm not Picard. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the <laughs> and the difference between these two men, and and you know earlier you had said you weren't sure if you thought that uh, Garrick respected Cisco, and uh, mm. I think I think and I don't know I even think in, in your own book here I think uh, Garrick reflects that he does respect Cisco, but for different reasons than he respects mm. Picard, um, and then you know the, he realizes the very big difference between these two men, and yet they're they're. They are going about it the same way, you know, like, they, mm. or they're looking for the same end results. Um, they just might not always do it the same way. Um, and yeah. I always thought that that was the difference between all of the captains that we see in Star Trek is that a lot of times they each had their own individualistic way of of going towards the same results. Um, you know, whether it was, you know, Archer, Picard, Cisco, Janeway, mm. or Kirk, they were all trying to get to the same place, but they all yeah. had their own unique ways of doing it. And that's what made them all so lovable to so many people. And you yeah. love them for different things. And, and it's, you know, it's either where they differ or where they are in sync that you're, you get those kind of places where you're like, oh, okay, I can really latch on to Cisco or I can really latch on to yeah. Janeway. Or, um, yeah. And so I, I really like that that you bringing that up in the book because it is true these guys are different um, and they have mm. different um, ways of doing things but they are all looking towards hopefully i mean you see them all looking towards we're working towards the same kind of future we just might yes. go about it a little bit differently so and picard does a fair amount of rule bending in this book as well you know he um mm -hmm. he did a Part of the jokes at the end is that even with the shutdown, you've got this Federation base just overrun with Cardassians. You know, all they've all they've done through the lockdown is beam Cardassians into the base, um, and that's a rule that Picard is 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 letting them bend. And then, um, you know, obviously his conversations with the car at the very end about how far they can let this piece of information go and about the true mm -hmm. way and yes, uh, yes, when they should release it upwards. This, you know, is is a fairly um, uh, tough decision to make and and not certainly by no means the uh the letter of the law so he's he's rule bending as well um i i think um i think garrick gets cisco yes. to bend rules uh um to garrick's advantage and from that learns that he should not do this with picard that manipulating right. picard would be a, a disaster but exactly. saying to picard i need you to do these things for the sake of an alliance and a kind of uh, a, a future good, um, mm -hmm. 
Picard, you can negotiate with us. It's exactly what you do with Picard. You negotiate. You you assume that he's a rational man that you can make your case to if your case is good enough. And um, of course, Garrick is very good at getting people to do what he wants. He's just got to work out the best way of doing it. And uh, and he sees that with Picard, it's honesty mm-hmm. and negotiation. Um, so well, um, yeah. And you have that great scene at the end where Picard is is quote-unquote dressing down Worf and uh, he says you know uh, you know that is indeed what I worded the instructions number yeah, one yeah. nevertheless I hope that neither of you will do anything of this sort again and of course uh, she says well of course not sir sorry sir and Worf just folds his arms and says nothing until yeah, next yeah. time of course says Picard <laughs> exactly. uh, which you can just see the gleam in Patrick Stewart's eye at that point in the scene that where and in the way that he would say it in that wonderful British um uh, <laughs> quote unquote British French that he is um yes uh, yeah. you know just but until next time and and, and a really um I think uh, a very kind of Kirk line for him to be able to say which I loved mm. uh giving him that, that that Picard has become a man he knows when to bend the rules and and when it's appropriate because sometimes um you know as Kirk would say you you don't have to break the rules you just have to bend them before they break and um and to be besotted with the rules is not is not congruent I think with the the rest of what the book is saying which is you know institutions don't have their own um morality it's the choices that you make as you you call yep. those institutions into being right. that make them moral um so hopefully that's a kind of small scale version right. of, of you know a bigger theme of the book well in those institutions morality has to come from the eternal nature of the people inside them because right and wrong aren't aren't institutionalized by an institution they are what transcends that institution mm. for all people and i think that's kind of a a big thing that we we kind of get from this book as well like we have we have to as a people figure out what is what is best for us what is right what is wrong and mm. then institute those into our institutions not have it the other way around yeah as a humanist and a sociologist i'd say well we we make our morality as we as we act and live together it's in that kind of contract or interaction with each other that we come into being as 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 moral actors as moral agents so um but i think there's common ground here so it's not just trusting that the rules will always give you the answer Mm -hmm. rules are good they're good as guidelines but you know they 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 don't always work in the um in the moment so um no i enjoyed that scene that was fun to write you know just a bit of um (laughs) well a couple a few more things one was i noticed it's it's very current this idea that instability and mistrust are are the things that are used by enemies of freedom most often to get mm. into power um and and sadly uh it seems they don't really have to work that hard with the corruption that flows out of the governments and it's this uh corruption that almost destroys cardassia again of um you know being implicit in this this act of, of mm. you know killing the federation president and um but the the fact then that the government itself is corrupt enough so that the the leader of cardassia finds out about it later and then won't tell yeah or confess to her her allies that look our people have been involved in this we we want you to help us take care of this you know that mistrust um that corruption 
that fear is what they mm. all prey on. And mm. um, it's it's kind of sad, you know, that uh, really in the end, even our best governments today have the same problem. We find out about this kind of corruption all the time, and it 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 doesn't take much for our enemies to to yeah gain power in places whether it's you know politically in a in a um in a place like uh you know in, in syria or any of those kind of places where we're watching these kind of things happen yeah. they're able to gain power because they say we have a better way um yeah and it's no, there's quite extraordinary easy to do. sort of um extraordinary cynicism in um I don't want to fall into the trap of going, oh, you know, oh, it's all better in the good old days because, you know, there's, there's a, obviously there's a lot about modern society that's much better than the good old days. But extraordinary cynicism in um, in political culture in, in, in Britain and in and, and in America as well. I think the, um, you know, this whole nonsense of the, the, the Senate blocking your um, your budget and this kind of thing, it's, um, come on, guys, you can't, you know, there are people who need government services that this is going to, effect they're going to be they're going to be hungry or they're not going to have money they're not going to get paid uh and it's it seemed a, to me it seemed a, a cynical move uh and um a great deal of cynicism in, in british politics a, a sense of antagonism between the major parties and it, even between coalition partners we've got a coalition government at the moment and and you can see that uh announcements are made um uh to uh spite the other the other member uh, of the coalition, um, or the leader of the other party, or whatever, and it, it, it there doesn't seem to be a, a, a consensus. Politics has its has its limits, and I think you can get a kind of um, monoculture from it. But the antagonism of, of political culture in um, in Britain, in particular at the moment, is um, isn't isn't getting anyone anywhere. I think, um, uh, and it's a it's a sort of um, uh, it, it reduces it to a kind of playground game. Um, and you think, well, you know, you've got to, you've got to be thinking about um, concretely solving problems and putting your case for um, solving these problems. And I, I, I think a, a politician who had the um, who had the nerve to do that and to start uh, speaking in that way uh, would find a, a a great desire for that amongst um, British voters that people would listen to that because people just cannot see what this this kind of politics is achieving uh, it, it just looks like playground games so um so there was a little bit of that I, and, I, and i deliberately put that into I, I my villain in the book is is probably a bit of a caricature but then a lot of politicians look like caricatures to me at the moment um he gets a grilling from one of our um uh, one of the scenes in the book is is kind of directly uh lifted from one of our news programs and there's a there's a guy that if you know British news programs you'll you'll recognize as one of the interviewers um so I did have a little bit of fun with that but I think there's a there's a sort of um vapidity to political culture at the moment which um at, at its worst uh gives scope for the the demagogues and the you know the um the uh, the bad people to to come through and, and say simple things that people want to hear but without actual concrete proposals for change or, or growth so um i i'm quite frustrated with um i, I think a lot, a lot of people are quite frustrated with political culture uh in britain yeah. and, and i dare say in america as well um and that has its own danger because you sort of see a a, a public f figure in britain the past week a guy called russell brand he's a um, yeah a, yeah yeah a, a comedian of sorts um 
had a, a very high-profile interview on, on one of our flagship news programs, basically saying, oh, there's no point of voting, you know, why would anyone do this? And you kind of, you listen to this and you go, well, that's symptomatic of, of something. Uh, I think right, he's, he's exactly. got a lot of kudos for, you know, telling it as it is. But you listen to that and you think, well, no, 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 that, that's not good. Not voting is, is um, at the very least, use your vote, um, you know, and, and ideally find some other kind of um, uh, political participation that's meaningful. Um, so he's got a lot of kudos, but for me it's symptomatic of, of, of something that's um, uh, not quite right uh, or, or quite bad, actually, about political culture. Anyway, so I, I put a fair bit of that into the book as well because um, mm. I, I think I was grumpy about it at the time. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, and there's there's definitely some great commentary just about the idea of the 24-hour news cycles that we have now, mm. and the good and the bad of it, the frustration that comes along with everybody thinking that they're an expert just because they have a Twitter or a blog. <laughs> um, and this whole idea that, you know, free speech is, is, is a fantastic and amazing gift that we have, mm -hmm. but it's a gift. It's not a right. You know, we don't have a right to free speech. We gift it to each other and yeah. to use Technically, it wisely. Technically, of course, you do have a right to free yes, speech. Yes, we do in America. In America. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, but <laughs> it, it's also, yeah, but it, it's also, I think it's a gift that we give each other, you know, and we misuse yeah. it all the time um, to say really hurtful, hateful things all over the place, whether it's the way yeah. that people ridiculously bash celebrities on Twitter or uh, the way that celebrities ridiculously bash politicians or way... Uh, the 24-hour news cycle creates this whole uh, dystopia of information because they don't really yeah. have the information as they give it to you because they don't have the full information because they have to immediately give you something. Ugh. It's a weird old world, 24-hour um, news. I, I read a, uh, I, I read something recently um, that, that says, oh, you know, it, it actually has... Um, uh, physiological effects on you, the kind of the, the way that it repeats news and the way that it kind of builds up and then uh, climaxes a story and sort of brings it down actually has negative physiological effects on you. It can contribute to depression and anxiety. Um, I, I, I stopped listening to the news. Um, I, I stopped, well, 24 hour news I gave up on years ago and I, I don't, I don't actually watch news broadcasts anymore unless specifically I want to, um, to make myself angry about something. <laughs> Exactly. I'll turn on the news. I'm feeling like I want to feel a bit angry. I'm going to turn the news on. So, uh, yeah, yeah, but very poor quality of, um, uh, and and a sort of uh, well, well, Twitter, Twitter, I adore. I um, I like very, very much. But there's a there's this cycle of outrage that you see, and mm -hmm. you know, people are very angry about something one day, and then two days later, you go, "Were we were we all angry about that the other day?" Yeah, but, um, exactly. Yeah, and people are getting a funny conception of free speech as well. I, I think, uh, and you see this a lot with. Um, uh, journalists on Twitter where they say something and then um, uh, you know um, the, the the part of Twitter that doesn't agree with them goes well I don't think that's right and then the journalists get terribly upset and go oh you know you're bullying me this is free speech it's my right to and yet you kind of you kind of watch this sort of thing unfold you go well I'm, journalists in the past probably haven't been used to this sort of um, degree of response and actually what they're seeing is free speech they're, they're publishing their article and people are saying, well, that's rubbish. And they're going, oh, this has never happened to me before. You know, usually I publish my article and right. um, I just get my, uh, you know, um, my mates going, that was brilliant. But no, now actually you, you've got a responsive public. Mm -hmm. 
So um, we, we have some interesting things going on. I think people think that if they say something and somebody disagrees, that's not having your free speech infringed. That's free speech in operation. That's somebody right, saying, exactly. I don't agree. Yeah. Uh, and um, we are all perfectly within our rights to not not agree with each other. So, um, well, and it's, so um, twist is really interesting. It, yeah, I think it really shows. Uh, even even just um, there was a there was a point in the book where there, you're talking about you know look you you said at first it was a Bajoran now it was the Zenkethi and now we think it's us the mm. Cardassians and and how this kind of 24 hour news cycle really perpetrates this whole thing of of we report things before we actually have all the information and so things get misreported instead of wisely yeah. piecing the story together and then having it come out when it's when it's it's full you know when when we yeah. have the actual story you know we we just kind of have half truths and half stories all the time and this is what people i think get so frustrated about I know I yeah. do. I, I'm with you. I stopped watching the news because it's not worth it because they're not telling me anything. You know, exactly it, it's that. almost yeah. better when we had the newspaper, when it would have to come out every day and they would have to track down all the stories and they wouldn't release the story until it was finished. Yeah. Um, and On when the they plus had side, you, more the you full get to story. triangulate your own news now. I mean, I, I pick up mm -hmm. information from multiple sources and, and assemble what That's I think true. is the... Yep. So it, you you kind of it, it makes you more responsible as a citizen in that way um, that you have to work out exactly what's going on. So yeah, a, a, exactly, and not just rely on the BBC or Fox or Huffington Post or whatever. You kind of um, assemble things. I think I, I think as well that um, the speed of response means people feel like they should be getting um, punishment or catharsis immediately. And some of the most mm -hmm. courageous actions I've seen online were you know. A, uh, uh, something happens in an organization, an online organization, people are very angry, you know, they, they demand punishment, they demand blood, and the people who are running the organization go, no, we're going to go through what's happened here, uh, we're taking your concerns very carefully, we all need to speak yep. together, see what's happened, and, and make a decision about that, and, and that could take up to maybe a week or a fortnight even. Right. And people are, you know, but people need this sort of, they need the story to have ended that day. They need the you know mm. perpetrators to be punished that day, um, yeah. so that they can move on to the next thing, um, which doesn't necessarily serve everyone very well. So um, mm. no, it's uh, we live in interesting times, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> that we do. Well, uh, Una, I wanted to just see um, you know what is what is next for you. Um, uh, you know what will we be working on next. And uh, where what could our readers be looking for there? And then, of course, too, um, where can they, you know, find you online um, and to be able to interact? Obviously, we talked about uh, Twitter a little bit, but yeah, what what's mm -hmm. that stuff that's coming up for you that we can be excited about? Uh, well, I, I mean, my immediate priority is, as as you know, is that um, my uh, first baby's due quite soon, so that's going to um, take yes. up quite a lot of my energy and uh, uh, creative um, creative spark for the next. Uh, Oh, 18 or 20 or 30 years, I think. So, <laughs> so that, that's kind of, that, that's looming quite soon for me. Um, I have, in the meantime, I've sort of been uh, storing up a, a, a bank of stuff uh, that uh, will, be, will be coming out over the, um, the next year or so. Not all of that has been announced yet, so um, I'll, I'll keep some of that under my hat. But there, there, there will be, whilst I'm busy with, um, with, with nappies and colic, um, there will be stuff coming out, so it will look like I'm productive. Um, I will plug <laughs> a book that's out at the moment, which is called um, Middle Earth Envisioned, 
Uh, it's edited, uh, okay. uh, sorry, it's written by um, Paul, Paul Simpson and Brian J. Robb, and uh, it's a beautiful book. Um, it's about adaptations of um, uh, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit oh, for, okay. for film and radio and stage, and um, a handful of us were invited to sort of do short essays for that. Oh, excellent. So I've, I've got a short essay um, in that about the radio and TV treatment of um, uh, Denethor and his son. Okay. Um, so that came out this week. It's a beautiful book, a coffee table book, a beautiful cover, gold, um, with little sort of gold things on them. I'm very pleased oh, wow. with the essay I've got in it. Um, so uh, I'm looking, really looking forward to seeing that. And it, I've, I've read the manuscripts. It's a, it's a super book. Um, so I think people would enjoy that. Uh, and then, um, ooh, what else is happening? Oh, I, I've got some academic essays um, that I've been working on about fan fiction and um, Tolkien fan fiction. So uh, oh, okay. they should, they should wow. pop up. Yeah, but um, but hopefully next year you'll you'll have a sense of me being um, published and productive when really I'll be um, without sleep. <laughs> exactly, and and embroiled in in all sorts of uh, fun uh, domestic endeavors. Yeah, so. it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. <laughs> well, just want to thank you so much for coming on. It's it's always uh, so much fun to get to talk to you. We always end up talking about I, I think just a great many things uh, beyond Star Trek. Yeah, and, I always and, really enjoy it. Yeah. Um, so we really appreciate that. We cannot wait uh, for your next, uh, you know, Star Trek book to come out uh, <laughs> and to be able to talk to you then. And hopefully uh, we will be able to have a, as many people as possible from the fall be able to come on and, and talk to us once Dayton's book is officially released. And um, we've gotten a chance to talk to him about that and let you guys just go at it. And, and, and um, because this is a really big series, uh, for mm. Star Trek. It's been a while, I think, since a series like this has been done. Yeah. And it's going to have massive repercussions. I think we're all going to want to talk about it once it's finally complete. Um, yeah. And, and get all the background information. So exactly. thank you so much for being here. Absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. I always really enjoy speaking to you. So thanks. Well, Matthew, that was a great interview with Una, and I'm really sorry that I missed out on it. But as we've talked about before on here, it's it's really hard when we try to coordinate Texas and the UK and Japan and get all those time zones working together. But I'm really glad that with everything she has going on, she was able to put some time aside for you anyway to talk about the book. It was a lot of fun, Chris. I always enjoy when we do have Una on, and uh, I, I mean, we... <laughs> after the interview we were both talking about how we could probably go on for quite a while just continuing to talk and so it, it's it's what's nice about having her on is it, it really is just a continuous flow of conversation and so had a wonderful time and it is really a fantastic book so I, I was very pleased that we were able to get her on and ha be able to talk about the book um, you know before uh, her life gets really too busy so most definitely and I'm looking forward to continuing on through the fall with the other three books as they come out and talking to everyone about those as well. So as interesting as that interview with Una was, Matthew, it's not the only thing we've been talking about here on the network this week. So here are some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Orb. Time travel and alternate realities. And then you have everybody else on The Defiant that we, you know, obviously don't know very well, but they all have somebody that's going to be affected. And then you think, too, 
Oh goodness, the whole entire Dominion War would have been affected if they hadn't gone back. Earl Grey. Episodes we love to defend. In the observation lounge, and he accidentally calls him number one, and then they look at each other like, is he going to figure it out? I'm thinking, what are the frigging know? They don't know anything. <laughs> They're not like, wait, wait, let me look that up. Wait, that means something that Captain Picard calls his first. No, they don't know that. The ready room. Relics. In the day, I, I asked Ron about it, and he said, we just screwed up. I screwed up. Producer screwed up. Mike and Rick, and, and uh, it wouldn't be Andre then. It would have been uh, it would have been Narain as the science advisor. It's like nobody caught it. To the journey! Five-episode marathon. Yeah, with Aisha Tyler and Jerry Ryan, she talked about how when she signed up and actually signed the contract to become Seven of Nine, she'd never seen the show before, but she watched... An episode of Star Trek Voyager as she went home that night and was aired, but apparently it was like the worst episode ever. She literally cried that night because she's like, what on earth did I do? Commentary, Trek stars. Ronald D. Moore recap. So you're saying that you wish Star Trek was BSG? No. What Just I'm... say for the record that you wish Star Trek had never existed. <laughs> And that Battlestar Galactica was was uh, the the thing instead. Warp five. Enterprise season one Blu-rays. Towards the end of that particular documentary, Brandon expresses that he had been also feeling quite dejected and burnt out at the end of the first season, which makes me wonder. Yeah, you know, did he did he really have the energy? Did, did was it kind of only just hanging in there? Trek news and views. Halloween tracks played the, um, the the murdering crazy person who has psychic visions and uh, can communicate with the ghosts. It was kind of a similar character to the one on Voyager, right? No. No? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Literary tricks. Demons of Erin Darkness. Well, what's what's interesting about it is, is that, you know, Kira, her gods haven't cast her out. You know, her people have. And it's yeah. a lot the same way of, you know, Luther and his 95 Theses and being kicked out of the Catholic Church and all of that happening. Because what Kira has brought to her people is, is kind of a reformation. And introducing our TOS show, Standard Orbit. James Tiberius Kirk. No, Star, Star Trek Four. I mean, aside from the bookend stuff, I don't really know how much Kirk grows there. It's, it's kind of a standalone story in a lot of he, ways. He learns about whales and how it's bad to hunt any animal to extinction. <laughs> Which I guess is an, an important lesson to uh, learn. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of those shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. We have new Trek Talk for you every day of the week. And some days we even have two shows and you'll find them all by going to trek.fm slash pd for podcast directory to get the links to various sources like iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune. Uh, you can stream or download from the website. So many, many ways for you to get the shows. Now, if you have thoughts on today's show, here's how you can contact us. Just go to trek.film slash contact. There's a form there on the website. And if you choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks, that will come to both Matthew and me by email. You can also send us a voicemail from the website. Just look for the tab that says send voicemail and click on that. And you can use your webcam's microphone to record a message and upload it to us as an MP3 file right there from the site. Also, go over to our forums and you can talk to us and other listeners about the books and about Star Trek. That's at trek.fm slash forums. There's a section there for literary treks. There'll be one for this show as well. And of course, for books and 
comics. Then in social media, you can find us on facebook.com slash trekfm, and you'll always find us on Twitter tweeting away about Star Trek all the time under username trekfm. Now, Matthew, what if everyone wants to find you? Where should they go? Well, Chris, if anybody would like to find me, you can do that on Twitter at MattRushing02, tweeting away about all sorts of different things. And then, of course, uh, we do a show together called The Orb. So we talk Deep Space Nine all the time. So if you enjoyed uh, our talk with uh, Una there about uh, Garrick, um, then, of course, you can find more Deep Space Nine talk where Garrick originated on the orb uh chris now when you're not hiding away with uh, orion slave girls uh, or catching up with morn at uh, ds9 where can people <laughs> find you yeah it's my favorite place to be these days with morn or the orion slave girls i'll let you decide on that <laughs> but um... <laughs> Now, you can find me on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username, as well as on my personal website at cbrianjones.com. And then elsewhere on the network, besides doing the orb with you, Matthew, you can find me every week on The Ready Room, where I'm joined by hosts from all across the network as we talk about all five live action Star Trek series and Star Trek news. And you'll also find me on Warp 5 with Kate Walsh, where we talk exclusively about Enterprise. So check out all of those shows. Also, before we let you go, we'd like to ask you to please support our sponsor for this week's show, and that sponsor is Squarespace, the web's best hosting in CMS that makes it simple for you to create a beautiful blog, website, portfolio, or an online store with the incredible commerce feature. Create your own space today. Go to squarespace.com for your free 14-day trial, and then use offer code TREK10 to get 10% off your lifetime purchase on new accounts. And we really thank Squarespace for their support of Literary Treks and the network. Also, if you'd like to help us personally, you can go to trek.fm slash donate to see our original alien illustrations. These are original illustrations by Tobu Ushi, who does most of the artwork that you see on our website, and they're available both as badges and art prints, and you can mix and match, choose which ones you want in which format, choose the level of contribution that's right for you, and we'll get those right over to you. And your contributions help us pay for the costs of production, hosting, and bandwidth that's needed to bring the shows to you every week, so we really appreciate your support of the network. Thank you so much for joining us, and until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.